LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And Dr. Russell Moore. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, I know we have, good. we have several doctors that occasionally come on as guests, yes. and you'll hear throughout the episode that we refer to him as Dr. Moore. And I, I don't know if that's just because that's how um, I learned about well, him. At church, you go to the same church as him. Yeah. Do you do people call him Dr. Moore there? Of course. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm, and like, what else would you call? Like, so for me, he was a professor at seminary. Oh, okay. So that's when you first so met him. he is Dr. Moore okay. to me. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always but, Dr. But we had Brad Wagner on the that's podcast. Different. He's not Dr. No, he's he Wagner. Was, but wasn't Wags. he a professor for you in he seminary? He was my too? dean. Okay. So why? Well, I was like a puppy. <laughs> So there was a guy who people don't realize was was at the the seminary the same time as Dr. Wagner, Dr. Moore, a guy named Dr. Warren Benson, who was like three days older than Moses at the time. He okay. team taught with Hendrix. Yeah. And he was my mentor. Okay. Um, I mean, he team taught with Hendrix when Hendrix was green. So like he, he like raised this guy. This That's is crazy. Guy yeah. Well, he, w- he had been my mentor maybe a year, year and a half and passed away. And uh, Dr. Wagner was the dean of the school. And so I just started showing up at Brad's office. But everyone at Lifeway calls Brad, Brad. Or Wagner, yeah. Yeah, or Wagner. (laughs) But everybody calls Dr. Rayner. Dr. Rayner. Dr. Rayner. Well, the fun thing is if you follow uh, Dr. Moore on social media, him and Beth Moore, it's like, you know, they have that friendship going on. Because they have this, they share the same last name. Who knows if they're related in any way, but not to anyone's uh, knowledge, right? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Moore is, he's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. ERLC. Of, yeah, the ERLC of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, whether you're SBC or not, uh, there's, there's so much intellectual reflection, thought, resourcing that they put out through the ERLC uh, that really spans beyond the SBC. Yeah. So definitely we'll link them up on the show notes. You can look them up online, but man, there you, if you aren't familiar with all the resources they're putting out, definitely familiarize yourself. Tons of content on some of the most uh, pressing and contentious cultural issues yeah. of our day. Yeah. So Dr. Moore wrote the best-selling book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. And recently, he just came out with a book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. So let's listen into the interview and hear Dr. Moore's answers to the five leadership questions. Well, thanks, Dr. Moore, for being on the podcast with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Yeah, I've been recently working through your book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. And, and man, there have been, if, 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 if you were here right in front of me, you would see the number of highlights and underlines and marked up-ness of the book because it's just been, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's been really cool to see a gospel biblical reflection on the family. So thanks for writing that. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, I was curious, though, before we go on to our questions, um, I was reading on page 142 that this about this premarital exercise that you do with couples. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, um, as I was reading it, it wasn't, I, I didn't really see it resolved or you didn't necessarily finish the story. So I'd love, I'd love for you to explain that scenario where, you know, you ask this couple, Hey, if I, if I were going to cheat on you, here's how I would do it. How, I mean, that's like, how does that reaction, how does that exercise typically go? Well, what I, what I do is to take the couple and say that they have an assignment, which is to independently of one another and without talking to one another, uh, to write out, if I were going to have an affair, here are some of the things that I think I would do to try to cover that up. And here are some ways that you could probably see that something was going on. And the reason that I do that is because I want them to start the marriage out with this sense of I'm vulnerable uh, to this. I can hurt you and I can sin against you. And to, to just start thinking about what each person is capable of and, and, and how the, the reaction would go. And every just about every time that I do that, the response is always what I'm expecting, which is, oh, I would never cheat on her. I love her. I would never cheat on him. He's wonderful. And that's the assumption I'm trying to destroy at the very beginning yeah. is this sense of, well, as long as we love each other, uh, as long as we have a happy marriage, then we're not going to, we're not going to be vulnerable to, uh, infidelity, which is of course not the case. So do you, uh, does the couple actually do the exercise afterwards or is it more mm -hmm. of just a, a shock value? No, no, no. They do the exercise and then that gives the opportunity uh, to walk through. And because usually what comes out of that is if somebody sits down and thinks through sort of here's the way I would go about covering my tracks or here's kind of some ways that you might be able to tell that I'm lying to you, they, they sort of discover some patterns they, of course, have nothing to do with adultery, uh, but just some patterns in their life in terms of here are some ways that I tend to deceive myself or that can can deceive others, which leads to to an entirely different set of conversations about what it means to uh, keep in communication with one another on the front end of a lot of these problems. Yeah, completely. Man, uh, it's, <laughs> I, I can't, I, I, I think I'd be so awkward just asking the question. I can imagine. <laughs> I cannot even begin to imagine that. <laughs> Having to process that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not sure how my wife would respond to that either. Yeah. I mean, do you. <laughs> well, and, you, that, and that's, that's exactly what, what I have found in, in all of these uh, years of, of working with people is that there's also this. Uh, the, the other thing I'm trying to work through is this sense of um, breaking through infidelity happens because there's this sort of air of mystery uh, that that comes in and the sort of hiddenness of it is its own enticement. And so if you have a situation where a couple can't speak about their points of temptation and vulnerability to one another at certain points, then uh, that's where you're going to have a problem. So one of the things I want to do in that process is to get the husband, the future husband or wife uh, to not be uh, shocked and to take it personally when there's some point of temptation. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that you have to battle this together. And so often if you have somebody who can come in and say, I think I'm particular, and it doesn't just have to do with infidelity. Uh, you may have somebody who can say, I think I've got a particular vulnerability when it comes to my temper. Uh, 
uh, or I think I've got a particular point of vulnerability when it comes to envy. Uh, mm-hmm. Those sorts of things, if they can fight to, to not with each other together, but fight together against that, uh, it, it goes a long way. So in in looking at the book, I mean, we are uh, we are familiar with your work with the ERLC. And I mean, you guys, I would encourage our listeners to take a look at their website and really look at their events, because I, I feel like you go into you do a deep dive on some really important issues. And all of those issues in some way or another, I think, do tie back to the family. So when you were putting this book together, were you drawing on some of uh, on some of those things that that you guys had been processing with ERLC, or where did this where did this come from? Yeah, partly, and then partly even before that, with just uh, dealing with uh, people who were in all sorts of um, of areas of difficulty or areas of crisis. And one of the things that I've noticed is that often people assume when they're going through uh, difficult times that somehow that means that they're unusual, that uh, most people, most Christians are somehow because they're favored with Jesus and they follow the right steps, that they're avoiding all of those things. So that when there's this point of heartbreak, uh, that comes in in some area of family, that that means that there's something particularly wrong with, with them. And I, I see that happening uh, all over the place when in reality, every family relationship brings with it the possibility of heartbreak. And if mm. there's not a brokenheartedness that comes in, in whatever aspect of family that is there, uh, it usually is because there's just not an awareness of what's going on and, and there's not a, a genuine enough connection for a heart to be broken. And so that has uh, played into it as well. I had a, a friend who said to me one time, and he was talking about parenting, and he said, you know, I knew that parenting would be humbling. I just didn't know that it would be humiliating. Hmm. And, and the more I thought about that, the more I realized, yes. And marriage is humiliating and singleness is humiliating and being parented is humiliating and taking care of an aging parent is ultimately humiliating and being taken care of as an aging parent is humiliating. And that's part of uh, that's part of what happens in in family life is there's great blessing. But that also means that there's going to be this possibility of, of hurt. And uh, and all of the ways that we tend to uh, we tend to live with our families is kind of displaying and and winning uh, in terms of outward uh, image that all ultimately falls apart. And so it's better to it's better to fall apart with it at the beginning uh, than it is to to continue to to pretend until it does. That's so good. I hate to. Move us on to our first question now because I just want to keep asking questions. Um, but part of it might tie into it. And uh, definitely, uh, let's let's uh, begin with um, what what who are you currently learning from, and and what are you learning? Well, uh, there's a, a number of, of different uh, avenues. I've been working a lot lately in technology. Uh, some of that has to do with. Uh, kinds of the ways that that 
technology issues are right at the heart of a lot of struggles that people are having in terms of family, but also just in terms of the, the bigger picture of, of what's happening with technology and are we uh, prepared and ready for that. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work in the area of artificial intelligence mm. and augmented reality and those sorts of questions. So I've been, I've been uh, learning a lot from tech experts uh, and sort of futurists when it comes to what, what's the next wave of technological advance and then what, what's that going to do. Uh, so, been, I mean, for instance, when I was serving um, a local church, uh, I would know uh, that any time that the uh, that the the plant the factory down the road would furlough people or lay people off or even if there was just a rumor that there was going to be layoffs, I knew that I was going to be facing a ton of uh, marriage counseling coming down the road because I was going to see particularly men in my congregation whose whose identities were sort of tied up in their vocations coming into a point of crisis. Well. You know, if we're moving toward a time of driverless cars, for one thing, you think about all of the jobs right now in transportation. Uh, that's ultimately, I think, going to be a good thing technologically and economically. But in the short term, it's going to leave a lot of havoc. Yeah. Uh, and, and the same thing is true when you're talking about issues of artificial intelligence and augmented reality and uh, all of those questions as well. So are you thinking through and, and learning about that and, and trying to respond um, from the ethics side of things, like how the church should respond or, or what's the end toward uh, learning those subjects? Well, well, sort of uh, uh, at multiple angles. I mean, one of them is we have people who are in these various industries who are um, who are wanting help thinking through what are the the ethical boundaries of uh, of some of these technologies because just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something obviously mm -hmm. but then also what how do we equip the church um, on some of these things because one of the things I've found is that the church tends to think that the most important issues that it faces are whatever people are debating on Facebook right now. Uh, and that's, that's <laughs> not uh, where the, the most danger comes. When you come in and say, here are the things that you actually are going to be facing, uh, often it sounds like ridiculous science fiction. Uh, just as if you had, you know, if you, if you said to somebody 15 years ago, uh, these are all the parenting issues that are going to come up with a piece of glass that can be in your child's pocket that can connect your child to every place and every person on earth uh, and, and every bit of information in less than a second. It, it would have sounded like witchcraft to people <laughs> right. uh, if they that's weren't so in the know about where technology was going. And so that's, uh, that's simply getting people ready for here are some of the sorts of questions that you're going to have to address that you're not thinking through now, that the, uh, the, the sort of natural uh, blocks that you have from being, uh, from being involved in that are going to be ripped away from you very, very quickly. So are you ready for that? Uh, that that's a key part of it as well. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. So in addition to uh, the the job side of things, is there any other is there, is there anything else that you're noticing that that will affect church leaders specifically? 
Well, I mean, there's a whole range of things. I mean, uh, one of them being uh, right now, for instance, you think of the pornography uh, crisis uh, Mm -hmm. that we have in in every church uh, taking place. Well, how did that happen to that degree? It happened because an old aspect of human nature. Uh, Genesis 3, just lust nature uh, is, is present. That's nothing new. But then you add to it this technological advance that, that really, uh, if you think about how people used to have to get involved in pornography if they were going to, it meant that they would have to go into a video store or into a 7-Eleven or, or into a, a hotel room uh, with, a, with a range of, of options. In all of those cases, they had to think of themselves as the kind of person who was willing to be seen at least by one other person as a pornography consumer. Hmm. That, that kept a lot of people uh, away from this. Didn't keep everybody, obviously, but kept a lot of people away from this. When you move into digital technology and internet technology, you enable people to have the feeling that they're anonymous and the feeling that they're just kind of drifting out towards something, that they're not making that decision to be that kind of person, which of course weaponized uh, pornography. Well, we're, we're moving into a time with augmented reality uh, and, and sex robots and all sorts of other technologies where even that distinction between pornography and adultery will increasingly not make sense at all. Wow. And that's going to have all kinds of implications uh, too. So there, there are so many different uh, elements here. And then when you add into that these questions of artificial intelligence, um, I, my wife and I, uh, I was trying to explain to her about um, a, uh, an, uh, a newspaper article that I had read about Amazon Echo doing a Super Bowl ad. But they had to figure out how to use the word Alexa on the Super Bowl ad without it lighting up every Amazon Echo in the country and shutting down the system. And when I was telling her about it, I said, you know, they were talking about A-L-E-X-A. And I spelled it out because I didn't want to alert the Amazon Echo in my room. And I thought, you know, if you had told me one day, just a few years ago, that I would be spelling out words to my wife, not because I was afraid that my kids were going to hear what I was saying, but because I was afraid that this little this little machine in my room would hear her name <laughs> and wake up, that would have sounded ridiculous to me. Uh, right. So when you think about the, the ways that artificial intelligence are going, we're going to look back on these little devices that we have now with a sense of, can you believe that we were that primitive at the time? Mm. And there's going to be real questions about what does it mean to be human? Uh, and, and what does it mean to count someone as human that will be facing us a lot more rapidly than I think we we think now? If somebody wants to look into that a little bit more. And this subject has actually come up with another guest or two recently. And I was worried that Daniel was going to shake his head or throw something at me because I've tried to bring it up maybe once or twice. Um, Mm -hmm. But what are some, what are some of the resources that you would recommend? Is there a book or two or um, a place that somebody can keep up to date with this if they, if they want to? Well, there, there aren't a lot of, uh, books that I would say are, are are really on top of this right now just because uh, so much of it is happening kind of behind closed doors. I think there are some, some trends that you can look at. I mean, one of them is 
a book by uh, Jason Lanier, I believe is, is his name, who did a, a little book called 10 Arguments for Deleting All Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And the reason I say that that is a significant book is not because I think he's right that you should immediately end social media. I didn't end social media uh, after reading that book. But what it did was to put into context, this is what's happening in terms of uh, social media and here's where it's going. So, uh, for instance, he had this really helpful discussion about um, about the the switches in the brain from what he calls the lone wolf switch and the pack switch. So there's a there's a sense in which what social media does is to flip us to the pack switch, where there's a, a sense of alarm and threat, and so the the whole uh, the whole pack has to sort of merge together as one. Which, of course, in human nature is is useful. If you're fighting a war, if you're you're doing those sorts of things, then you have to be uh, all united as one in that way. But when you're not, it it, it really saps you of creativity and vitality and the ability to actually contribute to the rest of the group with unique giftings and so forth. So the the book just sort of brought out all the ways that kind of the technological ecosystem we're right in right now tends to change us in ways we don't know about and don't think about. And I, I found that really helpful. That's fantastic. That's good. Well, in, in, in light of that, and also with your role uh, with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, um, and also outside of that, what, what would you say the, the main point of emphasis for your leadership is right now? Uh, if I had to choose a word, I would say integrity. And what I mean by that is not just character, but uh, the literal meaning of the word of an integrating uh, of, of every aspect of the, the self together hmm. to be able to, to lead uh, lives that are, um, Eugene Peterson uh, used to write about congruence about having a life that shapes up in reality congruently with, with the direction that it's going. Uh, that would be, uh, that would be a, a primary uh, emphasis right now to, to cultivating uh, the sort of personal and communal uh, character that's able to withstand challenges uh, beforehand. It actually comes right back down to that premarital counseling uh, question that you asked about at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, having the sort of, in that case, it is having the kind of marriage that recognizes its own vulnerability in order to prepare before the moment of vulnerability happens. Well, I think that's true in terms of every aspect of our of our lives. And so, I mean, the other, the other interesting premarital counseling moment is when I try to encourage couples to discuss the problems that they're having, uh, not when they're in a moment of tension with one another, but when things are really good. And nobody wants to do that because they mm -hmm. say, well, if I go and, and uh, if we're having our Valentine's Day dinner and or our anniversary dinner and we start talking about um, frustrations that we may have, that's going to that's going to kill our marriage. It actually doesn't. It actually helps you to approach those things with humor and with uh, in a constructive way so that then you're able to live through the difficult times. Well, I think that also applies to church life 
and to friendships and to our, our role in, in society as well. And just in terms of our personal integrity to preparing ourselves now for the sorts of things that we're going to face later on and then preparing those who are a little bit downstream from us uh, for those for those things. Yeah, so just so, in the way that we sort of prepare kids for puberty, uh, that's good. We need to be preparing people for midlife crises and, uh, you know, when they're in their 20s. And we need to be preparing people in their 50s uh, for, uh, for uh, potential uh, dementia later on or, or, or mm -hmm. being in a nursing home. And we need to prepare people for death. All of those things ahead of time uh, to, to take the, the mystery and the fear out of it to some degree uh, and to create the resources to, to face it. That's good. That's good. So well, uh, what are some practical ways that you are moving uh, and, and you're trying to grow in integration? Um, some of that uh, has to do with um, making sure that I'm building uh, patterns in my life that uh, allow for thought, uh, and reflection. And that was one of the big mistakes that I made uh, is that especially in the in the job that I'm in now, the first four years, I was having to be at this frenetic pace of rebuilding an institution and, and, and all sorts of, of things taking place that uh, I was just at a, a frenetic pace where I realized I don't have time to adequately reflect on even what is happening and what is going on. And so building the sort of time in to be able to uh, pray extensively and to be able to plan uh, extensively, all of those things are necessary. And just to be able to have the sort of rhythms that can uh, respond to creatureliness uh, in a way that can uh, that can have adequate, not just physical rest, but sort of uh, emotional and cognitive rest um, has been an important part of that as well. Well, I think this is a, a good transition into our third question because rest might be one of your answers. What what are one or two things that you find that you need to do every day other than read scripture and spend time with the Lord uh, that you need to stay sharp as a leader? Well, you know, you said uh, other than read scripture and spend time with the Lord, what I would say is uh, part of Part of what I have to do every day is to recognize how I particularly need to uh, spend time with the Lord, which means um, I have to do at least one of two things and usually both, which is for me, it is easiest and best to pray while walking. And so if yeah. I can be outside walking while praying uh, for, for an extended period of time, that's what's most helpful uh, for me to be able to. And that's been the case for me since I was a teenager, really, or, or maybe even before that. Uh, so that's part of it. The other is writing uh, prayers 
which really came out of, I was reading um, the uh, uh, Julia Cameron book, The Artist's Journey. Uh, you know, there's some good stuff in there. There's some not so good stuff in there. Uh, but uh, she had recommended morning pages, she calls it, where you get up and the first thing you do is you just write out three pages that nobody's ever going to see. Uh, and you don't have any plan as to what you're going to write. You just let your writing go. Uh, that that ended up being really helpful for me in just sort of seeing kind of what was on my mind that I didn't really know was on my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I found is writing out prayers uh, is is really helpful to me too because it gets at those sorts of uh, laments and requests and all kinds of other things that are sort of underneath the conscious surface. And so if I can spend some time writing that out, uh, it's helpful to me in terms of praying. That's, that's super helpful. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been writing my prayers as well as I interact with the mm. scriptures and, and really it's, it's not necessarily the three pages or, um, uh, that, that sort of exercise, but really just to focus. Cause I found, mm -hmm. Uh, that if I would just read the scriptures and then get on with my day and try to pray throughout the day. And, and as much as I would, I'll, I'll do that here and there, it's just my prayers were not focused. They were frenetic or I'd just be, it would just be ADD and <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't really yeah. have that time with the Lord. Yeah. So Dr. Moore, uh, you, uh, before we started, uh, recording the episode, you were, you were talking about how your five boys aged seven to 17 years old, uh, how, how you have five boys. And, and the next question is what does leadership in your home look like? And, and I, I know you probably prepared to answer for this, but, but while I was reading your book, the storm tossed family, uh, the chapter 11, the, the chapter is parenting with the end in view. And the very first sentence in that chapter is, should I baptize my son or should I ground him? <laughs> Can you talk yeah. to us about that a little bit? Yeah, that was a, that was a real crisis moment that I had when I, I, I was scheduled to baptize my son. And that week he had done something just a couple of days before that would be in any other case grounds for grounding uh, him. And so I was trying to think through, should I, should I punish him right before I'm to baptize him? Should I maybe put the baptism off? Mm -hmm. And thankfully I, I talked to a, a good friend of mine uh, who talked some sense into me, who, who said to me, you could communicate something awful in either direction here. So if you don't ground him, uh, as you're baptizing him, you're going to be communicating, uh, well, the grace of God means no consequences for you in terms of the way that you live. Uh, he said, and if you put the baptism off, then what you're going to be communicating is God receives you only after you have everything worked out and you're no longer in trouble in any way. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so he said, the best thing that you can possibly do is to ground him in the sphere of the home and to baptize him in the spear of the church <laughs> and to, uh, as, as Luther would put it, pronounce him simultaneously just and sinful. And that's, <laughs> that's true. And, uh, that was, yeah. that was what we did. Uh, so talk to us a little bit more about what, what home life looks like for you and, and what leadership looks like in the home. Well, uh, in our home has, I think, become increasingly more relaxed 
as the the years have gone by. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that when we became parents, we were parents of two uh, one-year-old boys that we adopted from a, a Russian orphanage who were coming out of a lot of trauma and a lot of things going on in their lives. And so those those their toddler years um, were really difficult years that we didn't know were difficult because you know, we, we'd never been parents before. We just assumed this is what parenting was like. Mm. So when our first child was born biologically, uh, we just spent so much time just looking at one another and saying, this is so easy. Uh, why do people complain about this? This is the easiest thing in the world compared to what we were accustomed to. And so I think that as time has gone by and, and you, we have seen with our children, uh, there are some things that would have just panicked us before. Uh, with with our oldest, that now we know what that is. And so you're able to recognize it and, uh, oh, okay, this is just what 13 uh, looks like in terms of mood swings or whatever uh, that comes along. And so I think there's a, there's a more relaxed, a more uh, sense of humor uh, about things uh, in our home now. I think that's a, a big piece of it. Um, and another piece of it is just learning to recognize the individuality of uh, each of the, the children. So I like to spend some time one-on-one. -on -one. It's good for me if I can take one of them on a trip with me uh, periodically by himself so that I can uh, sort of find out what's really uh, going on. There are all sorts of things that that uh, they're not gonna say unless they're in a setting where, where they can in that way. And so to, to sort of figure out the individuality of what each one of them needs from me. And they're very different things. That's good. That's good. So uh, let's go back to, I don't know. I can't, I, I don't know how, what year in time this would be, but let's go back to when you were 20 years old. What would you mm -hmm. tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead? The main thing that I would tell my 20-year-old self is uh, not to be captive to anxiety and worry. Uh, I think I've wasted a lot of my time being anxious and worrying about the future. And I can even see that because I have kept, kept journals on and off since I was 12 years old. And so I can go back and look at all of those journals and see all of the things I spent so much time worrying about, uh, either in most cases never materialized or when it materialized, um, I was able to not only survive that thing, uh, but also to find that the vulnerabilities that came out of whatever that thing uh, was turned out to be things I would need uh, later on. And so to, to say, you you just, and that's kind of what um, I was telling a friend not long ago. It's, I can look back and because I have the perspective that I have on the other side of it, uh, I can see things that seemed so terrifying at the time. And I wish I could say to myself, this really is okay. Uh, which made me think, well, what in sort of this, uh, alternative timeline, what is my 60-year-old self looking at my current self and saying, stop, stop freaking out about that. <laughs> stop worrying right. about that. You, you, there's really a bigger, bigger perspective here. That's good. 
That's good. Uh, Dr. Moore, as we uh, come to the end of the podcast, and I mean, there's so much going on in the news and <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. over and over again from all aspects, uh, from from where you sit, what is, um, and, you, and your perspective on reflecting on everything that is coming. And and by the way, listeners, if you haven't read Onward or The Storm Tossed Family yeah. or, or anything else that Dr. Moore has written, uh, even on their website, I mean, there's so much insight and reflection, and you bring such a um, a gospel centric perspective to it all. Uh, so, what advice would you give our listeners in light of everything that's going on uh, right now in the country and and in this world? Uh, the main thing I would say is to have a sense of confidence. Uh, I think that there's a sense of fear that can easily come upon people that turns into a kind of self-protection that ends up with a kind of meanness. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people who feel themselves to constantly be under threat uh, often become almost animalistic in terms of the the way that we respond. So if you think of what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians uh, 5, uh, don't don't bite uh, and 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 devour bite at one another uh, unless you're going to dev- because then you're going to devour one another. I mean, I, I think that's a sense in which fear always leads to that sort of uh, that sort of downward spiral. And so, to have a sense of confidence, uh, we don't know what's coming around the corner in each of our personal lives or in terms of the bigger picture of the world around us, but we do know that Jesus has this confidence of, I will build my church and I will bring my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven that ought to give us a certain kind of tranquility combined with a certain kind of restlessness that knows how to knows how to groan as we pray because we don't just see this stuff around us as being normal. I think combining those two things together is necessary. That's so helpful. Well, thanks again for uh, being on the podcast with us, Dr. Moore. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. When I was reading through his book, yep. uh, those two stories about the, the premarital counseling yeah, <laughs> and then being baptized and grounded in the same week, we're just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I expected the baptism and grounding story to go that way because okay. of knowing him and his writing style. And if you haven't read Onward, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you do, I think it's onward book or onward. I can't remember. I tweeted through that one and probably have at least 50 quotes. I think I did it for like four or five days. It was a record. Hmm. It is a thicker book, but it is very, 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 very good. And I would really encourage you to read it and take some other people's through it, um, especially before an election cycle. Uh, <laughs> don't do it during an election cycle. That's yeah. too late. Yeah. Do it before an election cycle. Yeah, there's so much theological and gospel-centric reflection that Dr. Moore brings to his writing. So definitely pick up a copy of those books if you haven't yet read it. Uh, but talking about books, uh, J.D. Greer, he's a part of our podcast network. He is? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, and he ask actually has anything. a... Yeah, he asked me anything. Yes, Go ahead. exactly. So, so he actually has a brand new Bible study coming out this month. It's called The Gospel of Above All. It's an eight-session oh. Bible study. 
<laughs> it's an eight session Bible study that'll give you a fresh perspective on the supremacy of the gospel over the trappings and temptations of modern society. So this is going to be a great study for your group on the gospel culture, gospel mission, gospel renewal, and gospel unity. So be sure to check that out. And before we wrap things up, uh, we do want to encourage you to check out Rainer on Leadership, who is also a part of our podcast network. If you haven't right. yet listened recently, Dr. Rainer and Jonathan Howe, they've covered topics like six major areas where pastors want to reset their ministries, why your church attendance may vary 25% each week, and a lot of other great relevant topics like that. Right. So just look up Rainer on Leadership on your favorite podcasting app and subscribe today. We'll catch you guys next week.